So recently, a there's this young guy who uh, has a YouTube channel called Capturing Christianity, and it's an, a, a Christian apologetics YouTube channel, and he himself is not a presuppositionalist, and he's he's done a few things. Um, it looks like I haven't actually seen them until I I just looked at the video I'm going to respond to today, um, sort of against the presuppositional method, and. Uh, he just recently came out with a new video uh, with a man, Dr. Richard Howe, and it's a brief, you know, 22-minute video kind of critiquing presuppositionalism. Now, I noticed he changed the title. Um, I mean, I well, it still says a sound refutation of presuppositionalism with Dr. Richard Howe, but the uh, uh, the picture of on the YouTube video is why I'm not presup, but I, I, I think that I, I've listened to a couple other guys talk about this video and they've all said something presuppositionalist they've all said something i agree with which is that this really isn't a sound refutation it's too f it's only 22 minutes it's too brief to be that and i don't even think dr richard howe would consider it that so i i don't know if that's really a fair or accurate title for this video but um long story short this video was recently released this week um with the capturing christianity host interviewing dr richard howe uh, sort of again critiquing presuppositionalism and so I'm going to respond to it, but I, I want to first give you a little bit of background as to why um, I think that this is worth responding to and um, where I'm kind of coming from. So I, you know, fell into presuppositional apologetics not long ago, uh, a few years ago. And for the past few years, I've been really passionate about it, and I've been really convinced of its, uh, of it being the biblical powerful approach to defending the faith. Now, in this last year, I've, I've kind of started to weaken in my confidence about presuppositionalism. I've encountered some arguments from some brothers online, and, uh, you know, like I said, I, I, I don't, I'm not as convinced of it being as biblical as I thought. Well, let me actually put it this way. Here's what I've realized, and I've kind of been going through this journey with all of my theology, where um, I, I, I'm just not as convinced I understand it as well as I thought I did. So uh, where I currently stand is I still consider myself a presuppositionalist. I still think it's true, and I think that I'm arguing in presuppositional um, methods. That said, I don't think I truly understand it fully yet. And, and here's why. This is going to come out a little bit in this video, but here's why. Just because, quite honestly, I haven't read enough of the literature from the two giants of presuppositionalism, which is Van Til and Bonson. I've only read one of Bonson's books, Always Ready. I've read that book. I've read it all the way through. I agreed with it. I understood it. I think it was convincing. Um, but other than that, I haven't really read presuppositionalist literature. What I've done is I've just listened to presuppositionalists online and said, yeah, that makes sense. I get what they're saying. And I've kind of bought into it, but I'm now convinced that with all of these different debates going around, people saying this is what precepts do, and then the precepts saying, oh, that's misrepresentation, and then them explaining I just think that you really shouldn't consider yourself a true precepter until you've read a decent amount of Bonson or Van Til, preferably both. So all that said, um, I'm not sure I, I would be a great advocate of presuppositionalism yet. I don't... I'm just not sure I know the mind of Van Til and Bonson well enough to feel like I really truly understand it and can represent it accurately. So 
Uh, where I'm coming from is what I think I understand of precept, I agree with. Um, but I do have some issues with it. As a matter of fact, I'm reading a, a book on apologetics right now by John Frame. And John Frame is presuppositional. He considers himself precept, but he admits he's not quite in the Vantillian lane. And he has some criticisms of Vantillian. Now, I know that there were other people who critiqued Frame's book, so I'm not saying that he's necessarily right. But I, I think that a lot of... Some of the issues he had with Van Til, I share. And at the same time, even though he's not totally pre-sup, at least in Van the Van Tillian understanding, he still considers himself on the whole pre-sup. And I think that's kind of where I'm at. There are some things I'm hearing from presuppositionalists that I don't agree with. But on the whole, I do think I belong in that camp. So anyway, th the reason I was intrigued by this video is because I'm in a place right now where I do feel relatively unbiased toward this subject. Right, I, I feel like I'm not so clinging to presuppositionalism, so white knuckled that I would just have a knee jerk reaction to this stuff. Right, I'm 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 willing to listen and to hear. Uh, but that said, after listening to this, I I'm not convinced that this was a good critique of presuppositionalism, but it provides me an opportunity to explain some of where I'm coming from. So that's why I want to look at the video. One other point of background before I begin it: Dr. Richard Howe is brilliant. This guy is brilliant. As a matter of fact, a video everyone should watch is there's a video online where Dr. Richard Howe has a conversation with two presuppositionalists, Jason Lyle and another one, um, uh, Oliphant. I can't remember his name. Uh, his first, he has an ab abbreviation and a name, but he's a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. Well, he was. Uh, I think he was actually just recently fired for a uh, an important theological issue, I can't remember. But Lyle and Oliphant have this awesome discussion with Dr. Richard Howe, and Frank Turek is there too, and he's not a presuppositionalist. He's kind of more of the moderator, but he does join in a decent amount. So it's kind of like a Turek and Howe versus Lyle and, um, and Oliphant. Now, at the beginning, they discuss old and young earth creationism, but then they eventually move into presuppositionalism. And that was the first time I ever listened to Richard Howe, to Dr. Howe, and then from there, I started listening to more of his stuff, and uh, he's very gracious, and I think he does his best to represent the other side well and compliment the other side. So let me just begin by saying he is brilliant, and I really like him, and I think that he has a lot of great resources that you could be benefited by. I disagree with him on presuppositionalism so far, but I do think that he mounts a, a good challenge to it, and he's a strong and helpful voice from the other side. Uh, so I think he does a good job in this video, and he does a good job, generally speaking. He really is a brilliant philosopher. Like, he is really, really smart. And he just recently did a debate on um, the inerrancy of Scripture, and he did a very good job. And he maintains that doctrine, which is really encouraging. So uh, I just want to be clear. I think Dr. Richard Howe is brilliant. I think he's a brother in Christ. And I think that he does a good job critiquing presuppositionalism. But what I'm going to get at, I'm going to use this video to, to basically defend why I still think presuppositionalism is true and good and biblical. But it will also give me an opportunity to, to vent some of my issues with it. So that's ultimately why I wanted to do this. Um, but let's go ahead and jump in. Well, let's get to the subject today. We're talking about presuppositionalism. So lay out what that view is and maybe some of the competing views, and then from there we'll look at arguments. So within, within evangelicalism, I think the two basic or major camps of how we do apologetics are divided into the, what I sometimes call the classical approach, or some people might call it an evidential approach on the one hand, 
and then the presuppositionalism on the other. And there are, there's a range within each one. Okay. Uh, Where would reform? So I, I really appreciate him saying that, and that's true. Um, it's interesting. So he just equated classical ap apologetics with evidential. He said, I call it classical, but you might call it evidential. But ironically, within this debate, those are usually distinguished. And so I appreciate th what he said. I don't think he would, I mean, because he just went on to say, now there are different streams within each one. And this is very true. And so I appreciate him saying that. And, and I would just argue that I think evidentialism is not synonymous with classical apologetics in most people's minds. Now, I, for the life of me, cannot find the difference between the two. I've heard people try to explain it. Um, R.C. Sproul explained it as evidentialists claim we can never have, s we can never use evidences and come to certainty that God exists, but classicalists believe we can use evidence and come to certainty. So he claimed the difference was not of method, was really just of certainty. But I've heard others who don't think R.C. Sproul is accurate on that. So I don't know what the difference is, and I'm happy to agree with Dr. Howe that maybe they are synonymous, but I just want to say most people don't. Um, but yeah, it's true. Within presuppositionalism, you have Vantillian presuppositionalism. You have Gordon Clark's Clarkian presuppositionalism. And I'm going to save this for later on in the video, but I would argue what's popular today is even Bruggenkate presuppositionalism. I think Psy 10 has kind of started a new train. And, and I think within classical apologetics, you've got some differences too. So um, everything he said so far, I'm tracking with epistemology fall in there? Well, actually, reformed epistemology would be a third category okay. that is, it only left it out because it's not as prominent among evangelicals as it might be within a more broad spectrum of Christianity. Okay. And it's generally uh, held by people with a little bit more of a philosophical orientation. So it would be the, the approach of, say, Alvin Plantinga uh, taking his uh, philosophy of proper basicality and warrant and these things and applying that to the task of apologetics. So it's kind of a different animal than either presuppositionalism or the classical approach. So um, that was really helpful for me. So I don't know much about reformed epistemology. I had seen some videos on it, but I thought it was just presuppositionalism flying under a different name. So I just, I'm not going to comment very much on this because I thought reformed epistemology was just presupp, but this makes sense because Alvin Plantiga, I've heard people debate whether he was presuppositionalist or not. And so if he is kind of in this third way, then that would make sense. So I I don't know much about Reformed epistemology, but I here's, here's what I do know. Presuppositionalism is unique to Reformed theology, and presuppositionalism focuses on epistemology, which is the study of knowledge. So that's why I thought they were the same thing. So I would imagine Reformed epistemology is going to be much closer to presuppositional apologetics than to classical, but uh, I, I don't know for sure. So this was helpful for me, and it just gives me something new that I need to look into. Tell me more about those two approaches than the, the two main approaches. So in effect, uh, <coughs> Cornelius Van Til, who's the fountainhead of American presuppositional thought, who was a professor at Westminster Seminary in the early 20th century, in effect says that any argument for the existence of God that concludes God cannot be the God of Christianity because the God of Christianity in his, his estimation has to be the presupposition of all argument. So in effect, Van Til would say, the assumption or the presupposition of God is the necessary condition for all knowledge. Now, I think that was a pretty good s statement from the little bit that I know. So yeah, the, the presuppositional method, just to summarize what he summarized, is that 
um, if God is truly the fountainhead of all things, then we need him to get anywhere. So you can't move toward God logically. You can't you can't mount an argument for the existence of God and be faithful to the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible is what gives life to arguments, right? So um, you can't argue to the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible is necessary for arguments. So you have to presuppose him to argue to conclude with him. Right? Does that make sense? So that's why... I think a decent way of summarizing presuppositionalism is that is is what his Van Til called and Bonson and Lyle referred to the preconditions of intelligibility. In order for us to get anywhere, we have to start with God, um, because you can't make sense of reason and logic and argumentation uh, unless you presuppose the God of the Bible. So, basically, presuppositionalism sees God as a starting point, not an ending point an inevitable, unavoidable starting point. As classical apologetics sees God as an ending point, we have to reason and conclude that God exists. Or presuppositionalism says we need God in order to reason and conclude anything at all. Whereas the classical approach is going to say there are truths about reality that normal human beings with the faculties God has created us with, there are truths that we cannot fail to know as human beings. Mm -hmm. And from those truths a person can construct, we believe, a demonstrable argument for the existence of God. Uh, this is helpful, and, and this is where I'm st why I'm still not a classical apologist, for, for two reasons. So he said classical apologetics, th well there, are, there are truths that we cannot fail to know. Uh, some people would refer to this as self-evident truths, and I agree with that. But here's my first problem. Now, they're going to get to this, to be fair. But here's my first problem. According to Scripture, what are one of those truths we cannot fail to know? The existence of God. Right? So, in other words, um, here's what he's really meaning. Here's the subtext of this. He's saying that there are certain truths we cannot fail to know. And, and among them would be things like logic. My own existence. Everyone knows that they exist. And you can't prove that. Like, you can't prove your existence. You would have to presuppose it. So, for example, there's the famous, uh, I think, therefore I am. But that doesn't prove that you exist because you began with the I think. You began with your conclusion. So it's a, it's a broken logical fallacy. So the, what, what classicalists are saying is there are some things we have to just grant as self-evident truths that I exist that the world that I'm seeing is the is reality. I'm not hooked up to a, a machine somewhere in the matrix, right? All of that stuff. Th there are things that are we have to take as inevitable, self-evident truths and then work from there. And I actually agree with that. But, but here are the two issues that I have, though. Is number one, um, one of those self-evident truths is God's existence. So if, if the classicalist is not willing to try to prove my own existence, if he's not willing to try to prove that I'm not a hallucinating or I'm not hooked up to the matrix, if he's not willing to prove those things because they're self-evident, why does he want to prove God's existence if that is also self-evident? So I, in other words, what I think classicalists do wrong is they say, um, here's what's self-evidently true. My existence, my reasoning, the laws of logic, those are self-evidently true. 
We can't fail to know those, so let's use those to prove God. And what I want to know is, why is knowledge of God not part of that self-evident truth when I think Romans 1 is very clear that you know God exists the same self-evident way that you know that you exist? As a matter of fact, if you read um, Calvin, the beginning of Calvin's Institutes begins with knowledge of God, and he says that the foundation of all of this, the foundation of all of theology is knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And then he even goes on to say, now, I don't even know which one logically precedes the other. You can't know God unless you exist, but you also can't know you unless God exists. So Calvin's point is that the two foundation self-evident truths are this. I exist and God exists. So Calvin, and I agree with Calvin, that you cannot make God's existence something that isn't self-evidently true. If anything's self-evidently true, it's that I exist and that God exists. So to me, classicalists, by their methodology, cut God out of the self-evident truths, and they grant all the other ones. And I would say don't do that. Um, and then we'll come up into this more. But then lastly, here's what I would also want to say. We all agree that there are some things that are self-evidently true that we cannot fail to know. But it doesn't follow from that that every worldview can claim that. So in other words, okay, I agree that there are some things we can't fail to know. But what I don't agree with is that the atheist worldview can make sense of the fact that we can all have self-evident truths. So that's when these self-evident truths should become an argument for my worldview, but the classicalist isn't willing to make those the argument. They want to start with those and then work from there. But as a presuppositionalist, I want to say, no, if we're all going to start with those, I want to demonstrate why foreign worldviews can't start with those. So uh, this, is th this is one of the areas where I do feel like presuppositionalists have nailed it and classical apologists have missed it. Oh, it's just a basically a, 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 a debate, if you will, over the propriety of giving arguments and evidence primarily for God's existence. So are you familiar with Cy Ten Bruggen, Kate? Uh, only in as much as I've seen some of his stuff on the, on the internet. I, I don't know that I've had a steady diet of his way in which he does it's it. It's an interesting so, way to put it. <laughs> well, it, it, that's just to say that uh, I don't know, in my opinion, whether I would categorize him as, uh, yeah, he's spot on with the Van right. Til Bonson approach, or if he's got his own sort of take on it. That's so actually I, the distinction I was trying to make there. It's like his, his version of presuppositionalism is a lot different than I think what you described. Okay. Well, that may very well be, so I, yeah. I'll defer to your knowledge about that. He's just I don't have a whole lot of knowledge about him either. So, <laughs> so I, I've only, you know, I've heard his name, I've seen him a few times in just partial exchanges, <laughs> but never really watched an, an entire debate. So you've inspired me maybe to go back, because I would be curious as to how faithful he is. I, I take the presuppositional method to be best exemplified by Greg Bonson. Okay, so I have to go on a bit of a rant here. Um, and let me, f let me first off say that um, I love Cy Ten Kate. I just love him. I've met him in person, and I think he's one of the most humble, um, gracious men I've ever met. And I think that he's brilliant, and I think that he's changed the apologetic landscape in a positive direction, not a negative direction. So I just want to make that very clear. However... I do have to s agree, and, and remember what I said at the beginning. I, I don't know that I'm the best you know, person to say, here's what presuppositionalism is. Psy has probably read more Van Til and Bonson than I have. 
But let me just say this, at the risk of sounding harsh, I think that one of the reasons why we're having these debates right now is because of Psy, which is good, because he's kind of been really helpful in, in really popularizing presuppositionalism beyond what Bonson did. But I, okay, <laughs> let me just say it. I don't think that he is necessarily argues the way Van Til and Bonson would. I, I do think he's kind of created a new stream of presuppositionalism. Now, I saw online someone tagged him and mentioned him in this, and he said he watched it, and I hope he responds, because I would love to hear him talk about this and I will if he if he if he addresses this he can convince me and I will change my mind so I'm I'm being tentative about this but I just want to say that um, I fell in love with Sai and he's the one who introduced me to presuppositionalism and I have eaten him up for years I've listened to everything he has and it's really blessed my faith so I, again I'm not trying to put him down because he's amazing um, but I don't think that I agree with some of his approaches to presuppositionalism anymore and I'm convinced that it's not true presuppositionalism at least if Bonson and Van Til are the standard now you, you ask well if you are admitting ignorance to so much of their literature why would you say that here's why because I've been listening to presuppositionalists for a long time and didn't even know it I was Excuse me. I was following presuppositional apologists before I even knew what that was. And let me just give the main example is James White. So many of you have probably heard of Dr. White. Um, I have been following his apologetics ministry for a very long time. Um, my dad passed that on to me. So ever since I was a kid, I've been listening to Dr. James White. And he's always been a presuppositionalist as long as I've been following him. But I didn't even know what that term meant for the entire time I was following I remember one time, I don't remember how old this video is, but he has a video on online where he kind of responds to Dr. Paul Copen, who's a presuppositionalist. He wrote a really famous book that I've got in my library back here called Is God a Moral Monster or something like that. It's really good. You should get it. But Copen is not a presuppositionalist, and he one time critiqued it, and James White has a video where he critiqued his critique. And I remember watching it being like, I don't understand what any of this is. I don't know what presupposition... I didn't understand it. So I didn't know that there was a difference between presup and classic. So I followed James White for a long time, which means I was getting a steady diet of a presuppositionalist without knowing it. And then, not long, about 2009, I got hooked on Jason Lyle. He's a presup, and I've been following him for a long time. So I had been listening to James White and Jason Lyle for a long time until I stumbled on Psy. And I can just honestly say this. I don't think Psy argues with people the way James White and Jason Lyle do. And I'm willing to bet from what I know about James White that he has read all the literature on Van Til and Bonson. I mean, that guy has read a lot. So I'm not asking you to defer to me. I'm asking you to defer to James White. And I would argue that James White and Psy do not debate the same way. As a matter of fact, James White actually very graciously responded to one of Psy's debates and kind of critiqued Psy and said, well, this is what I would have done. This is what I would have said. Uh, and, 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 and let me just give an example. You know, Psy created a kind of presuppositionalism that was really powerful and really easy to learn. Um, but it, it doesn't fit with other presuppositionalists, right? Like, James White is not afraid to debate with a Muslim the evidence for the historicity of Jesus. Like, James White would be willing to sit down with a Muslim and say, 
here are evidences for Jesus' resurrection. As Sai would, from what I've read, basically never say present evidences to people. Jason Lyle is able to present evidences to people where Sai almost never does. So, I, like I said, I, I don't know Van Til and Bonson very well, so I don't know who's closer. But I would be willing to bet that um, James White and Jason Lyle are closer to Bonson and Van Til, meaning I think that presuppositionalists are able to work evidences into their arguments more so than people think because Psy never does, and he has kind of become the face of presuppositionalism. So um, I'm, I, I'm interested as to why he brought Psy up, but I think that's why I think that, in other words, let me just summarize it this way. There are a lot of arguments against presuppositionalism online right now, but I think most of those arguments are against Psy and not necessarily Vantillian, Bonson, presup, right? So I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I, I think that presuppositionalists argue evidences more than people think. I mean, just go through James White's debates. When James White debated Bart Ehrman on the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts, he didn't just say, how do you know anything to be true? That's, that's what Sy would have done. Sy would have just cut out the evidences and said, you can't account for truth at all. But James White was able to, within that certain context, argue about the manuscripts. So, again, I, I think that presuppositionalism has a more of a place for evidences and examining things than, than size um, sort of stream does. Right. He's a disciple of Van Til. And I he did he a did. lot of debates oh. and everything. Oh, absolutely. He's debating. And everyone says that he's like just completely destroyed these guys, the, the people he's debating. And I, that's actually one of the things that people say that why presuppositionalism is the best method. So what's is because. So they're talking about Greg Bonson right now. And let me just say, this is true. <laughs> Greg Bonson, he absolutely destroys everybody he debates. And it's like <laughs> not even close. And, um, and, and so here... Uh, this guy, this capturing Christianity guy, apparently he hasn't listened to Bonson because he said everyone says he kind of takes it secondhand. He needs to listen to Bonson. There's not that many debates that Bonson had because he was unfortunately he he died prematurely. Um, but he needs to listen to Bonson. I I challenge anyone. You show me a debate where you think Bonson didn't clearly win. Just give me one debate. The the only one people might come up with is the Bonson R C Sproul debate, which really wasn't much of a debate. But even in that one, I don't think Bonson clearly won, but I, I still think Bonson won that inter that exchange. But I guess that's the only one. But you show me a debate. I've listened to him debate Jerry Mattatix on Catholicism, and I've listened to all of his atheist debates. You show me a debate that Bonson didn't clearly come out the obvious victor. I mean, he demolishes guys. And I think Cy did that as well a lot in his, in, in his videos, especially his earlier stuff. So I agree. I think a lot of people who had never heard of presuppositionalism listened to a Bonson debate or a Psy debate, and it was just so un the, the 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 difference between the two was so the chasm was so much wider than all their other apologists that that was attractive to people. It's so effective. Well, what's interesting about that observation, I would allege, is that whenever the presuppositionalist actually starts to construct an argument. I've never seen them fail to do exactly what the classical method does. To so what, so on what that. they do, basically, this is what I think is a perennial mistake in all that I've read of all the presuppositionalists that I've read, including okay. Bonson's material, is that when they define presuppositionalism, they say it this way, the assumption of God is the precondition of knowledge. 
But when they try to explain what that means, what they end up defending is God is the pre precondition of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, God is the precondition of knowledge because He's the Creator, right? Yeah. But God is not the same as the assumption of God. Now, what's interesting is this particular nuanced point came out in Bonson's debate with R.C. Sproul in the late 70s. And when Sproul was trying to rehearse back to Bonson how he understood Bonson's position, hmm. it's just an audio, so you're having to visualize. You could almost see Bonson shaking his head because Sproul kind of trails off Oh, that's not what you mean? And here's what the issue was. Bonson said, no, we're not merely making an ontological point. We're not merely saying God is the precondition of knowledge. And Bonson goes on, because that doesn't distinguish the two models. Both the classical, and I think he's right, both yeah. the classical approach and the presuppositional approach would agree that God is the precondition of knowledge mm -hmm. because he's the creator. What makes the presuppositionalist distinct from the classical is the epistemological question of the assumption of God is the precondition of knowledge. In every place I've ever read any presuppositionalist trying to explain that, <clears throat> he always ends up explaining how God is the precondition. In fact, it's interesting, just before our conversation, I was just happy. So, okay, so this is huge. So I think that his philosophical observation there is brilliant, and it's really helpful in cutting to the main chase, uh, cutting to the chase between the main difference between classical apologists, and presuppositional. So here's what he said. He said, classical apologists agree that God is the precondition of all things, knowledge included. But he said that that's not the same thing as assuming God. So saying God is the foundation for all knowledge is not the same claim as saying we must assume God is the foundation of all knowledge. So in other words, what he's saying is, yeah, classical apologists agree that God is the foundation for all things, but that doesn't mean we, ha we, have to we, n we need to assume that um, to in order to know that, right? He's saying we cannot assume that, study the world, and then come to know that. And the presuppositionalist is denying that, and he's right to a degree. But this is this is where this is why I'm a presuppositionalist still. So the classicalists would agree that God is the precondition of knowledge. But what the presuppositionalist is doing is saying, okay, if we both agree that that's the case, why can we not use that in our argumentation? So if God is the precondition for knowledge, why are you granting the unbeliever knowledge? Yeah, so this is what a pre precept would do. A precept would, ch when, when an unbeliever claims to know anything at all, a precept would challenge their ability to know anything without God. And he's saying, well, yeah, God's the foundation of knowledge, but we can't know that epistemically from assuming it. So we still have to work toward coming to that truth. Um, but I would say, if you know it now, right, if you know that God is the precondition for knowledge, why can't you reverse engineer that and make that an argument? And that's what presuppositionalists have done, where I feel like classical apologists just keep, they know God is the precondition of knowledge, but they don't, but they pretend like that's not the case when they're debating somebody. And I just don't know why we would want to pretend that's not the case. And, and notice that they never do this with the issue of morality. Th to me, what, what made presuppositionalism so helpful was everyone's a presuppositionalist when it comes to morality. So let me give you an example, the moral argument for God, which everyone argues pretty much the same way. You listen to Frank Turek and William Lane Craig and Cy and Bonson and Robbie, all these guys on different sides of the debate. Listen to how we debate morality. 
and whenever whenever an atheist claims there is no mor morality, um, or, 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 or forgive me, when an atheist is making moral objections, the presuppositionalist and the classicalist will both cut their feet out from under them and say, whoa, 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 where are you getting objective morality in your worldview? So he agrees. In other words, Dr. Howe would agree God is the foundation of morality, and therefore on that basis, he does not then try to use evidences to prove what is moral and come to that conclusion. Right? He is willing, he says God is the precondition for morality, so the second the unbeliever, the atheist specifically, tries to act moral or you raise moral objections, he's going to say, whoa, 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 where'd you get that morality you're talking about? So all I'm asking is, if God is the precondition for knowledge and reason, just like he's the precondition for morality, why can't you argue it the same way? When an atheist starts using reasoning, why can't you say, whoa, 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 where'd you get that reason from? When an atheist starts using logic, why can't you say, whoa, 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 where did you get that logic from? So in other words, he's agreeing that God is the foundation for all things, but the only time that truth claim shows up in his apologetics is in morality. Well, if God is the precondition for all things, not just morality, then why can't you argue on the basis of him being the precondition of all things? And so this is why I don't think there's as big of a difference between God being the preconditions of all things and the assumption of God being the precondition of all things. I, that's why I would disagree with him. I, I mean, I understand that there is a difference between the two, but practically there isn't. Right? If God is the precondition of all things, then that becomes an argument in and of itself, and therefore that argument has become the assumption of God. Right? So I, I, I really don't think there's as big of a practical difference as he sees. A conversation with a gentleman in the lobby where we are, and uh, he is a presuppositionalist, and I pulled out a Van Til quote on one of my slides of one of my PowerPoints, and within one paragraph, he switches from the presupposition of the truth of Christianity is the precondition of knowledge to the truth of Christianity is the precondition of knowledge. Well, the latter I wouldn't disagree with. That's exactly what the classical model would affirm. God obviously right. is the precondition. I like that distinction between the ontological kind of thing and then the epistemological. Yes. So what, what is it that motive? Okay, so this is huge. This is a huge thing that classical and precept have to work through. So what he just used is he just said there's a there's a difference between epistemology and ontology, which is basically what Dr. Howe just said. And there is. As a matter of fact, one time I heard a, uh, or I saw a meme of a classical apologist who was critiquing the presuppositional method by basically saying presuppositionalists confuse ontology with epistemology. And I understand where they're getting that from, but let me challenge the classical apologist back in this way and say what I think is actually happening is you are confused, you are missing how ontology affects epistemology. We are not confusing the two. But what we are saying is your epistemology changes depending upon the ontological nature of what you're trying to epistemologically know. So, in other words, um, when you're talking about God, our knowledge of God, that that's epistemology. How do I know God? Because of who God is, the epistemological method is going to be different between how do I know my dad? Or how do I know my dad exists versus how do I know God exists? I would say that 
the answer to those, the epistemological method is different between those two because of their ontological differences. So we are not confusing ontology with epistemology. We are not conflating them, but rather we recognize that epistemology is affected by ontology. And I think that classicalists have separated them too much. And here's where I think this becomes really crystal clear in a, in a specific example. Um, I would love to see a classical apologist debate a Roman Catholic on the nature of the canon. Th this is where I think I I this proof. I want to see Dr. Howe prove to a Roman Catholic how he knows the books of the New Testament belong there. How does he know that these books belong there and they don't? Or uh, how do they know that these books are inspired and other first century books aren't? How do, they how do, how do we know that uh, Romans wasn't actually inspired and doesn't belong in our Bible? How do we know that? I would encourage everybody to, um, you need to get this book. You need to get Canon Revisited by Dr. Kruger. If you don't have a good answer to that question, you need this book. But here's what he does in this book. He, he breaks that question down into a pie with three areas. There's uh, sort of textual reasons, manuscript reasons. There's in historical, so kind of history and manuscript is part of it. Uh, church witness, church history is part of it. But then the third part of it is what he calls the self-authentication. In other words, because scripture is God's word, it's going to bear certain intrinsic qualities that something that isn't divine, that doesn't have divine authorship, won't bear. So look at what Kruger has done. Kruger has not conflated epistemology with ontology, but he also hasn't separated them into completely different fields. He recognizes that because the Bible is a divine book, our epistemology is affected by how we study and know a divine book versus how we study and know what isn't divine. But the classicalists, because they've made such a huge distinction between epistemology and ontology, they cannot ever argue uh, for the, the proof of the inspiration of scripture on the basis of self-authenticating qualities. Because th this is what happened when James White made this claim in a debate in London, um, his his opponent, I can't remember, the Peter Williams, he was debating Peter Williams, and Peter Williams said, how do you know that the canon, that your canon is inspired by God? And when James White started to talk about self-authentication, Peter Williams said, you gave an ontological answer to an epistemological question. Peter Williams said, as a Catholic, as a Roman Catholic, he said, we all agree that these books are divinely inspired, but the question is, how do you know that? And what James White said is, you're, he said something along the lines of, like, you are missing how the ontological nature of these books affects our epistemology. So in other words, uh, Peter Williams tried to separate the canon the way classicalists try to separate our, all of our arguments for God. He's saying, listen, okay, God is the author of Scripture, and God is the foundation for all things. That's ontology. But now the question is epistemology, so we're not talking ontology anymore. But our argument is that the ontological nature of God affects our epistemology. 
So again, I challenge, if you're a classicalist, you write me up an essay or you schedule a debate with a Roman Catholic and you, you, you prove to me how you know the 27 books of the Bible are inspired by God and you can't ever have your epistemology be affected by, those divi by the divine authorship. You have to argue from the on the same basis with scripture that you would any other book. And I would argue you cannot defeat the Roman Catholic. I, I don't think you can defeat the Roman Catholic because our ontology, the ontology affects epistemology more than you give credit for it. This is one of the reasons why I'm still a presuppositionalist. It's the presuppositionalist to adopt that view instead of the classical view. So this is one of the things I appreciate, appreciate about the integrity of the presuppositionalist like a Bonson. Mm -hmm. And that is, because I think they're right in this See regard as far as it goes, that they're insistent that one's apologetic method should track sound theology. Mm -hmm. Now, people can debate what they think sound theology is, but pending a decision on that, the principle, I think, is, is, uh, is intact. Namely, since they are, at least Van Til and Bonson, are thoroughgoing Calvinists with a certain view about the noetic effects of sin. Okay, so we have, I have to break it up here because we're going to get into a second area, but I, I really appreciate what Dr. Howe just said, and this, any classical apologist who's listening to this needs to take this into consideration. So, Essentially, what he's saying is one of the he was asked the question, why is presuppositionalism so appealing to people then? And his response was basically because presuppositionalists, he used the phrase, I, I don't agree with the phrase, but I appreciate where he's coming from, that sound theology needs to track apologetics. And here's really, let me just cut to the chase of what he's saying. Basically, what he's admitting is that most classical apologists have horrible theology. And most Presuppos presuppositional apologists have very conservative biblical theology. And this is something that attracted me to presuppositionalism. Before I knew what the difference was, I was, you know, here's what most Christians do, especially younger Christians who are just beginning to defend their faith. They just Google and find Christian apologists and borrow their arguments. And that's what I would do. Like, William Lane Craig would say something, so I would go into my classroom and I would say what William Lane Craig said. But what's the problem? Well, William Lane Craig has horrible Christian theology. But I didn't have anyone else to teach me apologetics. I didn't know where else to learn from. So basically what I was doing is I believed certain things about Christianity and about religion and about God. But when I was arguing for my faith, I no longer believed half those things. <laughs> so in other words, m if you study all of these other classical apologists, you will find one of two things. They almost deny really important biblical truths and believe things that aren't true, bad theology, or they will be embarrassed of some of their true theology because their apologetics can't defend it very well. So in other words, if you want to be a classical apologist, this is correlation, not causation. I grant that. But if you look at the correlation, why are so many classical apologists all old earth creationists? In other words, if you if you want to believe what seems to be the clear reading of Scripture on the age of the universe, you can't be an apologist, not a classical one. Why are so many classical apologists like Mike Lycona denying the inerrancy of Scripture or believing a kind of inerrancy that really isn't inerrancy at all? How many classical apologists deny the inerrancy of Scripture? How many of them believe in evolution? How many of them believe in old earth creationism? William Lane Craig is a Molinist, for goodness sake. Molinism is a, is a brand new, novel, Roman Catholic philosophy. 
but he has to believe in it because because uh, in my in my opinion apolo classical apologists their apologi their apologetics dictates their theology and with presuppositionalists their theology dictates their apologetics that's what i truly think is at the heart of this and that's what i think dr howe is kind of admitting that the apologist will depend will his apologetics comes first philosophy comes first biblical exegesis comes second and so what makes presuppositionalism so attractive is I don't have to give up parts of my Christianity in order to defend the faith. I don't have to become an evolutionist, old earth creationist, Molinist. Uh, if, if I, if I want to believe, uh, you know, I, I can actually defend the Bible and the God that I actually believe in. So I, I appreciate him saying this, and I think it's very true. And if classical apologists, you know, like R.C. Sproul, who was able to be a classical apologist but still believed in the inerrancy of scripture and you know all those other things i mentioned they need to let their theology lead more and their exegesis lead more if they want to attract more people to their side but right now there's a lot of young apologists who say okay on the one hand i've got precept in conservative theology on the other hand i've got classical apologetics and liberal theology and suddenly the decision becomes pretty easy if that's how they're seeing it in the fall, the total depravity, then they think that this apologetic method is the only method that's possible given the uh, fallen estate that man is in. Is it just the fallen state or do they also? So what he just mentioned is also true. And this is another reason why I'm still a pre-sup. So he's, he talked about the noetic effects of sin, which is how sin affects your mind. And what he said was how presuppositionalists believe that if that's true, if, if the Bible truly teaches that men are totally depraved, including their thinking, then that should affect our apologetics. And I agree. And I truly do believe that sometimes evidential apologetics doesn't take into consideration that our reasoning is fallen and that we need God to interact with our reasoning. But that's that's what he mean, means by that. Look at other scriptures to... Defend, Romans 1, for well, instance. Well, they certainly look at other scriptures in order to bolster the case that this is just, in fact, the way the Bible does apologetics. But mm. even in those instances, it's always because of this fallen state and the noetic effects of sin that, that man is in this, in this rebellion. As Romans 1 talks about, the we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Right. But what's interesting about that passage in Romans, it says the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen through the things that are made, uh, so that they are without excuse. Mm -hmm. But those things that are clearly seen then are suppress the truth and unrighteousness as it indicts the human race, and then exchanges the creator for the creation. So I see the classical model going, well, this whole problem of us ex of uh, suppressing the truth and, and unrighteousness is really a moral problem. That's not an apologetics issue. The apologist can't undo someone's suppression of the truth and rebellion against God. That's between them and God through the act of the Holy Spirit. But this exchanging the Creator for the creation, I think, is where the apologetics comes in. It says, look, we can, we can leverage an argument to show that His exchanging the Creator for the creation is just false. There is the God that we know there to be, and we can demonstrate it by sound reason. What they do with that, if they're going to continue to suppress that, that's between them and God. That's not anything that the apologists can, can touch. So I think the failure to sort of follow it through, they're clearly seen attributes, then the truth is suppressed, and then the creator-creation is exchanged. It, it, the presuppositionalist sort of forgets that third step, and they think it's just merely a matter, it's clearly seen and it's suppressed. 
Well, then if that's all the problem is, the only way to unsuppress it is not apologetics, it's evangelism. So indeed, a lot of presuppositionalists would almost say, in fact, I've heard them say things to the effect, really the task force is to preach the gospel, not to try to defend the gospel. And I go, well, but to defend the gospel is going to address that third level there where the creator is exchanged for the creation. So I actually think this is a really good point, and I think this is really true, and this is an area where amateur presuppositionalists need to clean up their language. Because presuppositions will often say things like, well, we shouldn't prove that God exists because they already know it, and ultimately they're suppressing the truth anyway, so our arguments can't change their mind. But what does that lead to? That leads to don't do apologetics at all and just preach the gospel. In other words, I think what some presuppositionists fail is almost any one of their uh, critiques against a classical argument could be critiqued against their presuppositional argument, right? At the end of the day, we could say no argument ultimately convinces someone's moral rebellion. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So why argue at all? And that's not the presuppositional method. Bonson did not say don't argue at all. Van Til did not say don't argue at all. But the way some new presuppositionalists understand presup, that is the 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 inevitable conclusion of their complaints. So um, at the end of the day, yes, everyone knows God exists and is suppressing that knowledge, but even the presuppositionalist is still attempting to use a presuppositional argument to expose that knowledge. So we can't cr criticize the classical apologist for arguments that would, with criticisms that could be applied to our arguments as well. So I think he actually has a really good point here. I think it's good that presuppositionalists have such a high view of Christianity and scripture and that that's one of the things they say that is bad with a classical approach is that you're not a sort of assuming that Christianity is true and that's like the greatest good, that's the greatest thing to believe. And so how, but in a classical view, so for instance, mm -hmm. when I'm giving a presentation on the Kalam cosmological argument, that doesn't necessarily lead all the way to Christianity is true. And that's Correct. one of the things that presuppositionalists don't like. That's is right. Is the fact that you're not going all the way to Christianity every single time, all the time. No, and, and, now, that, and I, I think that's I agree a valid presuppositionalist. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So I'm sorry, I inter interrupted you. <clears throat> no, that, but that no, was it. But I think that they're right. And though I like the Kalam argument, I think it is true that it only gives you some minimal facts, which maybe in a lot of situations that's enough. Uh, people conclude, well, you've got somebody that made the universe sounds like God, and they're off and running. Okay, mm -hmm. fine. But a person who's going to push back and go, well, the Kalam doesn't prove that whoever created the universe still exists. Maybe he created the universe and went out of existence. Doesn't prove that he's good. Doesn't prove that he's personal necessarily, unless you add the, the additional elements that, that's additional to the argument. Mm -hmm. So I agree with all that. That's why, uh, uh, as a Thomist, I would say, yeah, but Aquinas' argument, interestingly, not only gives you the... Wait, which, which argument? Which uh, okay, so before we get into Thomism, let me just make a point about Kalam. So... I, uh, this is an area of precept where I'll admit I kind of disagree with, or at least I don't quite understand. But I, I know that, so Van Til was really big on, he didn't believe in piecemeal apologetics, meaning he doesn't believe in sort of proving one point and then proving another point and then proving another point and then kind of working our way to proving Christianity to be true. He felt that you have to be able to prove Christianity um, with a, with a single argument. Like, I, I, I can't remember how he'd phrase it, so again, I'm kind of exposing my ignorance, but he, d he didn't believe in what he, I th what did he call it? He referred to it as like block, a, ha a block of house 
or a house of blocks or something like that. He didn't believe in kind of what a classical approach is, which is, okay, let's just prove that God exists. Now let's prove that Jesus resurrected. Now let's prove the Bible to be true. And then we kind of prove one thing at a time, and then we build this cumulative case, and then eventually they see the truth of Christianity. Um, he didn't believe in that. He believed that all of our arguments need to be proving the Christian God. At no point in time should we be making an argument that proves someone else's God. And that's was is the typical problem with the Kalam cosmological s argument. So if you're not familiar with that, I, I might not be representing it w very well, but it's basically the unmoved mover argument, which is that um, we know all things that began to exist had a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a cause. So that's kind of a, it's a proof. It's a classical proof for God, right? In other words, how did the universe get here? We know the universe got here. How did it get here? It couldn't have gotten here on its own. So there had to be an, a, an unmoved God who put it here, an unmoved, an uncaused cause. So in, in the uncaused cause part, it comes to this. So if the universe had a cause, whatever the cause of that is has to be eternal. Otherwise, we have this infinite regress of, okay, so someone created the universe. Well, who created that creator? Well, that creator did. Well, then who created that creator, right? Then you have this infinite regress. So the logical argument is this. There has to be something eternal, and that eternal something has to be personal, and it had to have been the mover of all other things. And here's the thing. It's true. It's a true argument, but presuppositionalists are are skeptical of it because a Muslim could use that argument just as well as we can. And a Mormon could, well actually a Mormon couldn't, um, but you get the point, Any almost any theist could utilize that argument. So Van Til is saying, what good is an argument that doesn't prove the Christian God? I if I turn an atheist into a Muslim, what have I done? Um, if I turn an atheist into a deist, or what have I done? I haven't accomplished anything. So, and, and I, I agree with that, but here's where I disagree with. And John Frame makes this in his book. Let's show his, this is John Frame's book on apologetics I'm almost finished with. And, and he makes this point in this book where a lot of these arguments are can still be utilized just with a slightly different twist. And I think they're still perfectly consistent with presuppositionalism. So I wouldn't want to say the reason I believe in God is because of the cosmological argument. I, I do have a problem with that. Because that doesn't prove the Christian God, so that's not why I believe in the Christian God. But I think we can still leverage the cosmological argument to expose the absurdity of other worldviews, right? So if atheists believe in logic, one, I want to show them how their worldview can't account for logic. But two, I, I can still use the Kalam argument to expose the inconsistency of their worldview. They believe in logic except when it comes to the origin of the universe. Um... So uh, here's my problem that I want help with from other presuppositionalists. To me, it seems like a lot of the classical arguments can still be used in a presuppositional way. I think Psy abandons them altogether. I think James White and others incorporate them quite well. So do I have an issue with Kalam's cosmological argument? Well, it depends on how you use it, but I think that there are lots of faithful ways to use it. Well, all of them, actually. Okay. But they're, they're parsed out as the five ways. Right. But the one that I typically give more often is the way that is the uh, argument he gives in his on being an essence, which traffics in the distinction between essence and existence. Okay. Whatever that means. Isn't that the fourth way? Is that the fourth no, way? No, it's the not. 
No. Oh, it's well, not any of the ways. It is infused through all five ways, but okay. it's explicitly given in on being in essence in a, in a version or in a wording that is not as easy to see in the five. So it's usually easier for me to just kind of cut to the, here's the kernel of all of those arguments, and it traffics in this essence existence distinction, whatever that ends up being. And so but, is your point that from here we can go all the way to Christianity? More than that. Okay. That, more than that. Yes. What, more than that in the sense that not that we can go all the way to Christianity, but that the demonstration of God in Aquinas' argument inexorably entails all of the superlative attributes of God. Mm -hmm. uh, now, it may not be all the way to Christianity in the sense that it gives us special revelation. So I'll grant that it doesn't give us that, but it gives us the God of classical theism which is there's only one God, so mm -hmm. the God of classical theism would have to be the God of the Bible. When it comes to if the presuppositionalist or a critic of the classical method says, well, it doesn't give us all the way to Christianity, if by that it means it doesn't give us the Bible yet, I would concede that. And then I would say that's because I can give additional arguments for why we know that the Bible is God's revelation of himself, his special revelation, which is different than the arguments of his of natural theology and his existence. But what I deny is... So uh, that was just a bunch of stuff on Thomism um, and Thomas Aquinas's five proofs for God, and I won't get into that. I, they are at odds with presuppositionalism, but I'm not an expert on Thomas. I haven't even read his, his, um, his, his proofs in detail, so I, I, I won't comment on that. Is that the God that's delivered by this classical method of, of Aquinas? Mm -hmm. I deny the fact that the God that it gives us is some kind of minimal theism, as it's often described in some of the presuppositionalist literature. Go, <clears throat> no, so it's you not would say it's it's classical theism. It's absolutely. It it's yeah. it's simplicity. It's immutability. It's in it's immateriality. It's all good. Omnipotence. It's all omnipotence. All of the classical attributes of God cascade inexorably from this simple demonstration of God's existence, and then the sort of fountainhead of the attributes would be simplicity. And then once simplicity is explained, then all the other attributes follow inevitably and unavoidably. Again, I won't comment on this. And since there is only one he's God, really, he's a, then that has to be the God of, of the Bible. I'm tempted to go off track here. And uh, one thing I will say, though, so part, of, part of why I'm, I, the reason I, I'm not a Thomist and, and I don't like Aquinas' arguments is because, uh, again, he wasn't, he was a Roman Catholic. So it, it's hard to imagine that you're not going to follow him to those conclusions. Just talk about this argument that you just gave for another hour or so. <laughs> but let's. Uh, I, so, how can classical apologists do better about bringing bringing it back to what's what's most important? Right? Is is the gospel message? And this is something. Mm -hmm. that I'll, just, I'll just get your thoughts on this real quick. So, one of the things I've been studying is the relationship between homiletics and apologetics, okay. and the fact that in homiletics. Good preachers always, always, always tie their messages back to Jesus. Okay. And I think in apologetics, the classical approach can still incorporate this somehow. And I think Dr. Craig does this beautifully in some of his debates, Absolutely. where he'll give at the end of his debate, he'll give a, a sort of testimony yes. and say, if you want to know this person, then I invite you to read more about this and read the new. Real fast, I would argue there's a big difference between do apologetics and then share the gospel at the end and having an apologetic methodology that is constantly proving and assuming and working with the gospel. I think those are different. Testament and see if your life has changed like mine was changed. Right. And so what I think what we need to do is find creative ways, the classical approach can find creative ways to always bring it back to the gospel. And it's not impossible. Oh, absolutely. Just like, just like a good preacher will bring a passage in, in Daniel all the way back to Jesus. Yes, and I, I think I would celebrate that. 
but I think sometimes we'll find ourselves, the opportunity to do that may be strewn out over a longer period of time than we wish. That is to say, it might not be the case that when I have lunch with an atheist friend and, I, and we have our argument, that before lunch is over, I've gotten all the way to the gospel. Yeah. It may be that it's going to take a little bit more plowing the field, massaging the conversation or whatever, before I ever get to the point where giving the gospel would even make sense. That's a judgment call. I mean, there's nothing ever wrong with just giving the gospel no matter what. You yeah. can hand them a four spiritual laws track for that matter. But I'm talking about in terms of the, the cascade and connections of linear thought that once and until a person understands who God is as far as being the creator, the God of classical theism with his attributes, it's only then that they're even... We're about in to get an ad, sorry. I uh, so get can't this. avoid this. Every 1.23... I can mute it, but... So again, I, I some of this stuff is maybe not as extremely relevant to what I want to talk about, position but to consider skip through some. The truths of the Christian we'll faith specifically. Uh, let me try to remember where they go from In terms of Jesus here. being God in flesh. So I think one of the difficulties that presuppositionalism faces in particular is how to engage someone of another faith, like a Muslim apologist or, or something like that, because you can't have necessarily the assumption of Christianity there if you're talking with a Muslim, right? Well, so how does that work? No, well, it's it funny. Doesn't, it doesn't really have any problem with the classical approach, right? Well, it's funny. No, it doesn't. And it, it's funny. I, I was actually in a conversation with a presuppositionalist and right in midstream, because I thought, well, I'm not really making any headway. I'm not really very persuasive here. So I just switched and I began to argue as a presuppositionalist Muslim. And everything this Christian said to me, I said, the problem is you're not presupposing the self-authenticating, infallible word of the Quran. That's your problem. You're not submitting yourself to the authoritative precondition of all, now however you want to say it, and used all the language that I could think of mm -hmm. of the presuppositionalists, except saying Christian or saying Bible, I said Muslim and I said Quran. And in order to try to get him to see that as far as the template of what you're doing, it can adjudicate different religions, each of which might make the same presuppositional authoritarian claims. This is there was a, no way to adjudicate between them. This is a... So this is where, this is why I want to hear Sai's take on this, because this is, I feel like, is brought to Sai quite a bit. Um, because of the way he does precept, with he, when he debates atheists, he sort of has this script, and he's got this um, thing with, uh, you know, basically saying, when you don't start with God, you can't have this and this and this. And it's hard to sort of pick up that script and then put it into a conversation without an atheist. Um, so I will let, hopefully, Sai at some point can defend that. But I, let me just say this, that I think that this is not an argument that really fits with presuppositionalism as a whole, right? James White, I would argue, has had no problem debating Muslims and atheists. So here's where the real question becomes. The question is, is James White being inconsistent with his presuppositionalism when he debates something like the historicity of the resurrection with, the, with, the, with Muslims or... Uh, the reliability of the transmission of the Quran, and I would argue no. And I think that if you're really inundated with introduction to a precept apologetics with Psy, you, you even though I don't think Psy has a problem with that either, the way he does it would make you think that James White can't do a debate with a, m with a Muslim on the reliability of the Quran. So this gets to me, let me just explain briefly where I am with presuppositionalism. I think that that um, it's not against the presuppositional methodology to simply say true things, right? So if someone were to say, do you believe the Book of Mormon is 
uh, is is the word of God. Um, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't immediately jump to no because the Christian God is the presupposition of all knowledge. I, I don't think you have to do that to be a consistent presuppositionalist. I think you can sit down and expose the problems of the Book of Mormon. Um, now, there would still be some presuppositional assumptions in there, right? Like, I would still be presupposing the truth of Scripture, and I would be comparing the Book of Mormon to Scripture, so there would be presuppositional commitments in there. But the, the, the presuppositional method is to simply expose the inconsistencies of worldviews. And you can do that by, you can, you can expose how the Quran has no historical reliability and th- has theological errors and contradictions, and you can expose that with the Mormon, and you're not being anti-presup when you do that. So again, I, I think that this is an argument that doesn't fit well with presuppositionalism as a whole. A critique that some people even raise against Reformed epistemology what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it equally works against Reformed epistemology? The, my initial problem with the Reformed epistemology is, is trying to ultimately frame the issues in terms of warrant or justification. So this is a sort of a, a picadillo of mine with, I'm gonna skip with that, analytic I don't know philosophy. I'm going to skip that because I don't know anything about Reformed epistemology, and that's not what I'm arguing for. philosophy has come, uh, come about. We're doing all these different... Uh, to me, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like Reformed epistemology is doing that, right? Because Alvin Plania said that... We'll just have to leave that for another. And I thought, well, I don't think anyone could successfully carry through a discussion about warrant mm-hmm. to use yeah, this term or Reformed make any judgments here. about these metaphysical things. I go, I think you can't do that. Personally. Yeah, so I think that what Plania was doing... Is doing- Again, it's just my sort of allergic reaction to analytic philosophy that I regret that some... That some for, before we could have a robust discussion of how knowledge is warranted or knowledge is justified, there has to be uh, a, a discussion, not that Planica is not able to do this, but there has to be a, a discussion of and pulling the trigger on what knowledge is to begin with. Mm-hmm. Well, right there, then I'm going to be very different than, than, say, a typical analytic, because I'd say, well, knowledge isn't even what... My knowledge isn't even an epistemological category anyway in the first place. See, that confuses I, me, but I, that I won't get into that. Well, that's only matter in a sense. It's like it sounds like maybe we'll wrap it up here. <laughs> well, thank you, yeah, Dr. Howard. So I don't know if that was helpful to you all. I hope it was. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm just still kind of evolving in my understanding of presuppositional apologetics. But let me just say, um, while I really respect Dr. Howe, and I think he's brilliant, and I do think that in his conversation with Lyle and Oliphant, he, he raised some good issues. So, again, I, I could be wrong about presuppositionalism. I'm still learning. Um, but overall, I don't think that this video really proved anything, and I don't think it really harmed the presuppositional method. Um, so uh, that's just kind of where I'm coming from. Those are some of my thoughts. I hope you found them helpful. So thanks for joining me, and as always, maintain the gospel and maintain the fight. God bless.